If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Woolerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Billy Joel. It's his birthday today. Yeah. How old do you think Billy Joel is? Quick thinking. Quick, quick. What do you think? What, 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 what? 79? <laughs> 69. 74. Either way, no, no, he's not 74. You're full of it. It's not 74. You it's too correct. old. Yeah. Oh, no. If Billy Joel is 74, how old are you? If Billy Joel is 74, how old are you and everybody else? Oh, my goodness, we're all getting old. Anyway, happy birthday to Billy Joel, 7-4 today. Over 20 uh, top 40 UK and US hits and four number one albums. There you go. Billy Joel uh, celebrating his 74th birthday today. All right, um... I guess we knew it was going to come tit for tat. Uh, we, we took a week to expel a uh, Chinese diplomat. It took, um, it took China about a day. So, so like, does anybody care? Oh, no, they've kicked out our diplomat. Who cares? What was our diplomat doing? Harassing Canadian citizens over there the way the Chinese diplomat is here with Canadians? Come on. Um, and of course, the really sad thing in all of this is uh, the prime minister at first nonchalant with all of this says he didn't find out till last Monday, expelled the diplomat a week later. Of course, ceases and his national security advisor saying, no, no, uh, he's got all of the information. Uh, we have left it. We have put it up the chain of command and his chief of staff said she gets everything and she passes it all to him. So somebody's not telling the truth here. And, uh, it kind of looks, uh, a little funny. Um, but, and, and what was very odd and Michael Chong got pretty upset with, uh, uh, Melanie Jolie uh, earlier this week when she ex- said that the reason that we're not booting this person out yet is because there's, you know, Canada, uh, Canada is economically dependent on China. That's the Globe and Mail's words, not her. And and so all of a sudden, the, the politician and his family or any other Canadian Chinese person that is here. Um, well, wait a sec. Um, we're really not uh, this. This could hurt our canola export. So we're going to wait. So when is safety second to trade? When is democracy second to trade? Have you noticed we have not heard a dang word from the two Michaels since they got back? You ever wonder why? Like, come on. China is controlling the prime minister like a puppet on a string. And now that it's all backfired, he, he's trying to make it sound tough that he's, he's, you know, taking action. Well, they threatened allegedly a Canadian politician and his family. They harassed them. That was known for a week. I'm sorry, is this Canadian diplomat in China, are they harassing people there? Gone in a day, gone in a day, boom, out you go. Boom, 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 boom. So it's bizarre, but the Prime Minister is now backtracking big time on all of this. As uh, here, we'll play you a clip of him trying to explain why this is all happening now. Expelling a diplomat, declaring a uh, foreign diplomat uh, persona non grata is a significant and serious step. And we took a little less than a week to reflect on it, to look at the possible implications, to make sure that what we were doing both demonstrates Canada's firmness, which it does, but also keeps Canadians and our interests protected. First of all, it wasn't less than a week. It was one week. It was Monday to Monday. It wasn't less than a week. So enough of the wordsmithing. Why is this decision made now, Prime Minister? This is a decision we took seriously, we took with careful consideration in order to, uh, to do the right thing and uh, expel the, uh, the Chinese diplomat. We understand uh, there is retaliation, but we will not be intimidated and we will continue to do everything necessary to keep Canadians protected from foreign interference. Clearly, you are intimidated. That's why it took two years for you to do this. And then once the story broke in the Globe and Mail uh, a week and a day ago now... 
Uh, now you're speaking up against this. And, and my goodness, uh, two years before that, uh, Ange- uh, uh, <laughs> Angelina Jolie, um, our foreign affairs minister, Jolie, uh, had this to say. And, and again, it's not about just people's safety. There's other concerns here like trade and the economy. My job is to make sure that as foreign minister, I deal with the relationship with China. When it comes to issues of foreign interference, we've been clear. We would be uh, sending our diplomats packing if that's the case. Here's the other thing. Uh, two years they've known about this information, says CSIS and the National Security Advisor. It's been a week since this story broke in the Globe and Mail. Um, send them packing as soon as possible. Although, by the way. China, you, Canadian ambassador, out now. Five days to do so. They're doing it right away. Bing, bang, boom, boom, boom. Two years or even a week? I don't know. Uh, And more on the decision here from uh, Melanie Jolie. It is a decision that was taken based on considering many factors and also many of Canada's interests in the world, including uh, in China. And so it needed to be thoughtful. It needed to uh, uh, take some time. And we needed to make sure that we did this in a very serious matter. This is not about protecting trade. This is about safety and people being targeted on Canadian soil, and in the case of the MP, in the House of Commons. You act on that right away. You don't sit there and decide whether it's profitable for you, or whether the PR angle's good, or whether it's going to affect our canola shipments, or even other Canadians that are in China. Since when has China not been holding somebody of concern? It's always the case. So, again, caught on their heels, and it's going to be fascinating to see how this unravels. Drones, you've seen a lot of them, uh, not only kids, but in industry. Think about how this industry has progressed over the last uh, decade or so, and some of the industries that could employ the use of drones. It's no wonder Hamilton's Mohawk College has established a new, uh, a new research site in the area for remotely piloted aircraft systems, more commonly known as drones. The Unmanned and Remote Sensing Innovation Center at Mohawk and the city of Hamilton have entered into a three-year pilot program to use this site to serve as a regional hub for research and technology, advancing innovation, and the rapidly growing sector. To talk more about all of this, Richard Borger is with us, professor, lead researcher for Mohawk's uh, Mohawk College's Unmanned and Remote Sensing Innovation Center and is with us now. Richard, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hi, Scott. Yeah, thanks for having us on, and uh, apologies in advance for all those acronyms and mouthfuls you had to you had to work your way through there in the introduction. No, that's okay. I mean, obviously, this is a new and growing industry, but tell us about this site. What's different with the addition of this site, how it changes things for Mohawk? Yeah, so yesterday was actually a really exciting day for our, our team at Mohawk. Uh, we were able to make two announcements. The first one was the uh, established to announce the establishment of a drone testing park down in uh, the Windermere Basin area, and this site is actually a really uh, incredible opportunity for our team and for our students for a number of reasons. Um, we're able to actually conduct drone pilot training now down at a site in uncontrolled airspace, uh, and we're able to actually welcome a, a number of innovators from across the country as we you know test and validate their platforms. Uh, at this new new drone testing site, so it's a it's a really incredible opportunity for our team to have access to the space. So this is basically a place to practice. Absolutely, and um, we were able to work through uh, some really solid collaboration with the city of Hamilton to to end up with this this drone testing site, uh, and and we're able to practice without having because it's in such a secure location without having to worry about you know, unwanted uh, or unexpected access or, or incursions into the site, which are always somewhat alarming when we're running a platform that might be in uh, an a beta phase or we're working with a new pilot who, who might be, you know, a bit surprised or startled to see someone where they're not expecting it. It gives us a, a nice quiet space to go out and play, uh, practice, learn, and, and validate and test uh, new equipment as it comes to market. You talk about others being involved or, or uh, invading the territory, per se, for lack of a better pra- uh, phrase. What makes this a, a good place, the perfect place to practice? What do you need? So the perfect place to practice is kind of a, a, a mix of a number of factors. So as I mentioned earlier, having that kind of secure perimeter around the space allows us to 
be able to focus on the technology and not have to worry about people inadvertently. I mean, invading is, I suppose, a bit of a strong word, but they're not inadvertently accessing the space because they're not aware of what's actually going on. Mm-hmm. And we have certain rules of, you know, as drones are being flown, of how far we have to be away from people, depending on the use case and the pilot's uh, license and certification level. So being able to have that secure space to play and work is actually really important. And, and I say play, I mean learn and work. Uh, in addition to that, um, we are in uncontrolled airspace. So this is, I suppose, drifting into the regulatory compliance piece. But anytime we're running a new platform through that beta phase or that testing phase, it's uh, it's preferred to do that in an area where we don't have you know air traffic management. So we're not worried about airplanes flying through that space as they're approaching a runway, for example, as we would expect if we were near uh, the Hamilton Airport. Um, and because of the location of the college, we are firmly in the in controlled airspace zones. So having a site that Mohawk has dedicated access to allows us to basically work with new platforms in uncontrolled airspace to do all of the validation before they get brought into controlled airspace. How big is the demand for drone-related industries? How uh, this much this must much or must span rather a, a lot of different industries. It does. It it the the drone industry is growing exponentially. And I'm, actually, if if you don't mind, I'd I'd like to actually also highlight one of the the, the second announcement that we made yesterday, and that was a relationship with Transport Canada because it feeds directly into the question that you're you're speaking with. We are working with. Uh, a variety of sectors ranging from forestry through mining through uh, land surveying and mapping and basically every sector of the industry in between and our work in this space actually attracted the attention of Transport Canada to a point where we uh, signed a memorandum of understanding with Transport Canada yesterday to allow validation of this technology as it's emerging through the uh, various innovators across the country and in fact we were able to work with a number of uh, innovations as those uh, platforms get developed. I mean, essentially, we're working with new inventions as they start coming to market. And I mean, we did. We just finished a project with a local company called SkyGage that makes a drone that can can actually conduct ultrasonic inspections on on tanks or any metal structure. So it's mm. it's such a wide and diverse uh, environment and industrial sector to be part of, and it's developing at such a rapid pace that. Um, I mean, we, we tell our students regularly the jobs that you're going to be working on in five years haven't even been invented yet. Wow. And, and, yeah. and we're seeing that pace of change so rapidly. It's, it's really an exciting space to be in. I was just about to ask you, what sort of programs, variety of programs, does Mohawk offer in and around drones in, in the operation? But obviously, as you said, this would be continually invo- evolving. Yeah, right now, I mean, we have the basic drone licensing courses, and, and anyone who's interested in flying drones, uh, I mean, the, the regulations start at 250 grams. So if you're flying any drone in your backyard just to, you know, buzz around, take photos of your property, that kind of stuff, you really should be licensed. And, you know, we offer those licensing courses. But in addition to that, we also integrate this very heavily into our um, uh, civil engineering technology program. So my colleague, Matt Shelley, actually brings drones right into the surveying classroom to do hmm. uh, land mapping for our, for our civil engineering technology students. Um, I teach it in structural design where we're doing, uh, you know, uh, visual inspection or structural analysis on buildings using uh, drone technology. Um, we see it right through from, you know, the civil engineering world through the police foundations world and then right into the media and broadcasting uh, air, uh, realm as well. Richard Borger with us, professor, lead researcher for Mohawk College's Unmanned and Remote Sensing Innovation Center. A new site uh, with, uh, obviously, concern of the city as well, or working with the city, uh, where they can test fly and check all this new technology out. Richard, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Thank you very much, and thanks for taking the time to chat this afternoon. I guess, uh, finally, a week after uh, the Globe and Mail broke the story of the uh, harassment targeting of a uh, Canadian MP uh, at the hands of a diplomat uh, from uh, from China and allegedly uh, the Chinese Communist Party, that uh, diplomat has been sent packing or will be in, in, in a few days and such. Obviously, many saying this information has been around for two years, so says C. And the national, uh, the, the prime minister's national security advisor, the prime minister is still insisting he didn't know anything about that. That being said, seven days later, an expulsion today, one day later, after we do that, China has ousted uh, a Canadian diplomat. Let's bring in Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch, and with us now. Duff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. 
Yes, I am. Thank you. Okay, Duff, uh, your thoughts on now the Prime Minister obviously expelling this diplomat. Does this now know, does this now not admit guilt? There's a big problem here. Uh, we're not just going to chuck this person out uh, willy-nilly. We're going to take a week to investigate it all. But now that we've done all that, he's gone. Does that not automatically set in or set off a public inquiry and you know the the demand for a, a foreign registry that stop that would start immediately once you eliminate this this uh diplomat does that not automatically drop the next domino uh not for this government the foreign registry uh the consultation ended today uh if people want to have a, a say they can uh the government has six questions they want people to answer, and it just search for uh, consultation on foreign interference, and you'll find the page where you can go through and answer those questions about a, f- a foreign agent registry. Uh, but a foreign agent registry is only going to do so much uh, if it has any loopholes in it or is weakly enforced. It's not going to do much at all. There are huge loopholes in election, donation and spending, lobbying and ethics rules that make secret foreign interference easy. And all of those rules are very weakly enforced by watchdogs who are really lapdogs because they're chosen by the ruling party cabinet and they uh, lack enforcement powers and, and really strong enforcement attitudes. So we need all those loopholes closed to really close for uh, uh, the foreign interference uh, and stop it. And so far, this government has shown, well, we want ethics and rules enforced. We'll choose the sister-in-law of Prime Minister's uh, one of his oldest friends to be the ethics commissioner. You want uh, an examination of foreign interference? We'll choose the Prime Minister's old family friend to look into it. So they're just not serious about it. And kicking out one diplomat does not suddenly make them serious. It just seems that for the last week, um, uh, the government has been saying the same thing over and over again, despite points coming out that completely contradict uh, what they're saying. And they say they are taking action. They keep repeating that. What action, Duff, do you think they're taking? What are they doing? Well, they're examining a foreign agent registry. And they would say, well, we've taken the action of appointing Prime Minister Trudeau's family friend, David Johnston to look into the matter f- further. But I mean, that's just rife with layer cake of conflicts of interest with David Johnston being a friend of Trudeau, but now judging his actions and judging whether there should be a public inquiry. It's all a charade. Uh, we need an inquiry or we need to empower a parliamentary committee, which has independence from the, the uh, Trudeau and the, the uh, Liberal cabinet, because it's a minority government and opposition parties control the House committees right now, and have a committee empowered to take testimony uh, behind closed doors and get full security clearance like an inquiry commissioner would uh, to examine this issue. The key thing is the inquiry commissioner cannot be selected by Trudeau. That's choosing your own judge. He's already chosen a friend. Uh, to judge him, he chose uh, his one of his best oldest friends, one cabinet minister Dominic LeBlanc, his sister-in-law to judge the Trudeau cabinet. This guy will choose friends to tr- protect him instead of choosing watchdogs to look into situations seriously. And so we cannot allow Trudeau or any single politician to choose an inquiry commissioner. Let me ask you this stuff, because obviously this is one of those things, like, for example, when the harassment started, the targeting of Michael Chong, everybody agreed with it. Even liberals, this is not wrong. The line has been crossed here. So many have been asking, like, why, especially now with this diplomat being expelled, why wouldn't the Trudeau government do this? Why, like, it, 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 Unless, of course... This somehow benefits him. Does the, do, you, do you think the prime minister is concerned if we shed more light on this? It will not only expose China and the Chinese Communist Party, it'll also expose him in some way. Why would he not want to do what's best for the country? This crosses all party lines. I agree. And so that's the great thing about these situations is that uh, the politician uh, caught in the situation really is going to be uh, 
on the horns of a dilemma will be gored no matter what he does. If he says no public inquiry, he tries to use David Johnson, his family friend, as a shield and say, David Johnson doesn't think we need one. No one's going to believe that is a credible recommendation. And it will look like he's hiding something. And if he calls an inquiry, probably you're right. The resistance to the inquiry is because uh, the it will expose th things that are, are very questionable in terms of uh, reports that went up about interference to the prime minister's office and weren't acted on. We already know that we have a, a committee of parliamentarians. It's not a committee of parliament. These are people that are uh, the committees under the control of the prime minister, but they have full security clearance and they recommended in 2019, a bunch of measures to prevent foreign interference. And none of them have been acted on by the Trudeau government. So we already know that they have received recommendations and information and not acted on it. And likely an inquiry would just expose more. But again, uh, the inquiry has to result in recommendations to close all the loopholes in lobbying, elections, ethics, donation and spending rules, because all those loopholes now make it effectively legal and easy for foreign sponsored groups in Canada and lobbyists to be lobbying secretly uh, the Commissioner of Lobbying right now and the House of Ethics Committee are pushing to gut key ethical lobbying rules in ways that will essentially make it legal to bribe MPs. Lobbyists and lobby groups will be allowed to essentially bribe MPs with fundraising and gifts and sponsored travel. Uh, and so we need all these loopholes closed or whichever loopholes are left open will be the ones that will be exploited by foreign government sponsored groups to try and influence MPs. It seems government was uh, hesitant to do this because of repercussions other than safety, whether it be trade or what have you. Uh, eight days, seven days later, the prime minister acts uh, on this after uh, the Globe and Mail article. Two, uh, two years, if you want to go back to CSIS. Uh, Canadian diplomat announced today, boom, gone. Next day, your thoughts? Not surprising at all. Uh, China is a big, powerful country, huge population, so an economic power a uh, huge military, so uh, a, a political power and, and a threat because of the huge population in the military and the stance of the president. Uh, they are pushing their agenda. They're going to continue pushing it worldwide. They are a superpower. And we're a tiny country by comparison. And so the, that retaliation of kicking out one of our diplomats is likely not going to be the only thing that they do. And that's the game that the government has been playing and governments in the past. Well, Canadian businesses want to sell to China and they can sell a lot because there's tons of people in China. Do we sacrifice our principles in order to have that economic gain for Canadian businesses? And uh, stuff we haven't heard from the two Michaels at this point. Uh, not that surprised. Um, they uh, were there at the dinner with Joe Biden and, and uh, were in the news at that time. Um, and they probably don't want to talk more about the situation. It was a very obviously trying and very difficult and harsh thing that they went through. And they probably want to leave it behind. Um, but uh, lots of others are looking at this situation. And uh, I was before a committee today that's examining foreign interference. And amazingly, the two committees, the Ethics Committee, so-called Ethics Committee, because they're the ones recommending allowing lobbyists to bribe them, and the Procedure and House Affairs Committee I was before today, these two committees examining foreign interference, and they say that we're really concerned about it. But the committee I was before today introduced and it's now there's a now new loophole in their ethics rules that allow lobbyists and lobby groups including foreign sponsored uh, groups to secretly pay for interns in in MPs offices so they've essentially said let's make it legal and it has now been made legal for foreign sponsored groups to place spies and pay for them in MPs offices as a gift to the MP in secret Duff Conacher with us co-founder of Democracy Watch Duff as always thanks for the time you well Thank you. Take care. A New York jury has reached a verdict in the civil suit against former President Donald Trump. To talk more about all of this, Brian J. Karam is with us, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, columnist for Salon.com, Washington diplomat and host of Just Ask the Question podcast, author of Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. Brian J. Karam, how are you today? 
Well, pretty good. How about yourself, Scott? You doing all right? <laughs> so far, so good. Uh, another chapter in uh, former President Donald Trump's life. Uh, what happened today? Give us an update. How does this change things? <laughs> I don't know. How it changes. It should change things. And a uh, you know, a jury found him liable today for sexually abusing an advice columnist, uh, Jean Carroll, in 1996, awarding her five million in a judgment. That many say is going to haunt him as he campaigns to regain the White House. He's still the uh, leading candidate to get the GOP nomination next year, and he's due on a CNN uh, town hall tomorrow night. So that should be interesting. Um, Donald Trump is just a, a victim of his own stupidity, and it, it's coming back to haunt him. I have said I don't believe he'll be on the ballot in November of 2024, and I think today will uh, push others in that direction of thinking the same thing. What does this mean for Donald Trump? Does this just go into the washing machine of lawsuits? Does this just go into the, the spin cycle here? Where Does he pay the person? Uh, what happens next? Well, God knows he'll probably try to appeal, but I doubt that it'll be appealable. It's uh, $5 million in a judgment that he won't be able to pay. He's the most broke billionaire I've ever known. Um, it, you know, Earlier, Trump didn't even attend the trial, right? He insisted he never sexually assaulted Carol or even knew her. And then he said uh, that he couldn't, he, he said that he wasn't even allowed to defend himself, although he, def, he you know, he didn't go. He could have gone. Um, he posted a new message on social media uh, about an hour ago complaining that while he was waiting the uh, decision on a false accusation, he was, quote, not allowed to speak or defend myself even as hard-nosed reporters scream questions about this case at me, which is a, uh, you know, that's baloney. He was, he, he refused to testify. And then after the verdict came out, he said it was a disgrace, but this is all Donald Trump. He's always on the grift. There are people who are going to believe him, but I think as, as the information mounts about what a really despicable character he is, I believe that even the most stalwart of supporters will begin to question whether or not they really like this guy. So you say this could end up hurting him as opposed to not sticking to him? Well, things are starting to stick to him. And, you know, he's he's, you know, all all that grease on him has uh, been evaporated. And and now things are starting to stick to him. (laughs) Uh, So do you think this victim will ever see any of this money? Doubtful. (laughs) But more importantly, it's 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 the verdict that counts. I mean, that's the vindication. And they didn't even ask for money. They they left that up to the jury to determine. And the jury came up with the five million, which means that the jury takes it pretty seriously what Donald Trump did. And um, although the statute of limitations have run out on prosecuting him for a, any criminal activity on this case, the jury was sending a clear message that they thought that Donald Trump was a criminal. Uh, that's exactly my, my next question, Brian. What about this heading back or being back in 1996? Less credibility, more? Um, I, I think the credibility question with Donald Trump is always a very tricky question to answer because those of us who are cogent know he has no credibility and hasn't had for many, many years. Those who believe he has credibility may begin to question his credibility but Donald Trump will continue to fly by the seat of his soiled pants until he no longer can. Brian J. Karam with us, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, columnist for Salon.com, and the Washington Diplomat. Always fun, Brian. Thanks for the time. Be well. You too, brother. Talk to you soon. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we know about the Chinese diplomat and uh, suspected intelligence officer has been sent home five days to do so. This happened yesterday uh, when we expelled the uh, the Chinese diplomat alleged uh, targeting of MP Michael Chong's family. Uh, many are saying, why didn't this happen seven days ago when this all broke, uh, or even two years ago when the information was brought forward uh, from CSIS and the National Security Advisor? There's obviously a two different stories coming out. And uh, the chief of staff of the prime minister's office says he sees everything uh, and then saying that CSIS didn't bring it up to him. They say, nope, it was there two years ago uh, and around and around and around we go to talk more about all of this. Margaret Bequeg Johnston with a senior fellow Institute for Science, Society and Policy 
Casey, Senior Fellow, Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa and with us now. Margaret, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thanks for inviting me. So, Margaret, it seems we're getting conflicting information now. Uh, as it turns out, uh, the, the diplomat here in question has been ordered to leave within five days. Uh, now, almost immediately, we hear that a Canadian diplomat has been uh, expelled from China as well. Many are asking why we just don't get to the bottom of this, simply because it is in all parties' best interests. All parties agree that the harassment of an MP is just, that's where you draw the line, whether it's trade or or what have you. Does the Prime Minister fear that the greater the uh, transparency is on this issue, that the worse he will look, that his he looks bad, not China? Well, I think... I think he knows that the, the government doesn't look good in any of this. It's, uh, there have been a number of missteps. There's an investigation going on into why politicians were not told, uh, because they say that they weren't. You know, it was the dead of the summer and pe- people were changing jobs. And that's maybe a partial reason. But there will have to be some accountability for why this wasn't raised much higher and indeed why this um, a Chinese diplomat was not sent back two years ago when CSIS first learned of this. Now, it wouldn't be CSIS to make that decision. It would be uh, the uh, senior officials and ministers in uh, you know, public safety, foreign affairs, and the prime minister's office. Um, but that, that decision should have been made then. The fact that we didn't send him home the day that the news appeared in the Globe and Mail, so more than a week ago, uh, it's baffling and, and super concerning. And we were hearing the foreign minister say that um, they were weighing all the possible um, retaliation that China might do in economic and trade, um, in consular cases, you know, people who are detained over there. And, and also other diplomatic retaliation they might undertake. And normally, it would just be sending uh, one person home from the other country, as they've done now. They've moved quickly on that. Uh, and so we should have uh, stood on principle and sent uh, home this guy who had threatened Michael Chong's family. And, you know, if he should have been sent home now, I think. It's amazing how they say they're always worried about retaliation, but when is China not retaliating? When are they not holding somebody? When are they not threatening? They're always doing that. My question is, um, can can the Prime Minister keep blaming others? You know, it gets lost in the sauce. It didn't get from this department or that department, and yet we've got you know, confirmation from the National Security Advisor. This stuff got to the to to his office, and Katie Telford is chief of staff, saying he sees everything. So, where's the disconnect here? Well, it, clearly, in this case, it was between the bureaucracy and the political level, and there there will be documentation and investigation and some kind of answer sometime in the coming weeks or months. Um, and, you know, there are investigations into other things that are, are happening as well in terms of, of uh, China's um, election uh, interference. And, uh, and of course, we have David Johnston preparing a report, and, uh, and some action will come out of that as well. Uh, however, I don't see this moving fast enough to solve our problems before the next election. Uh, and that's really what is concerning to me, because to date, China has not been held accountable for the, the disinformation campaign they put it up against some, some MPs and for illegal campaign contributions and other things. Um, and so we need all these gaps to be filled. We can't go into the next election wondering whether our system is going to hold. Uh, if the Prime Minister was cooperating more, could we not get this fixed? It seems that he's putting his hand in the sand or his head in the sand and in a hole and, and, and blaming everybody else for it. At the end of the day, does the buck not stop with him here, Margaret? Well, it does. And we will see all these investigations come in and reports made, uh, but it'll be down the road somewhere. I think the big thing everybody's looking for right now is the public inquiry. 
And uh, I I would be astounded if David Johnston doesn't make that a very strong recommendation, and he's supposed to do that by May 23rd. So we'll have it in a few weeks. And, And from there, we'll get a lot of detail of what happened behind the scenes here. More why why would walk. Margaret why would why would the prime minister just not do that just get to it right now I mean get it done and do it right now because it's sense we, we're sensing the reason he's not is because he's hiding something it favors him well that's the appearance um, I you know I, I I spent 37 years in government and I can tell you that that it's it's not always hiding things that it's, it's uh, mistakes being made and uh, you know, I think there's a unanimity that everybody wants uh, an inquiry, and he's left the decision up to his friend David Johnston, of an eminent Canadian, grant you, but it should be the Prime Minister making the decision. He can now say to Xi Jinping, well, I wasn't the one who called the public inquiry yeah. this <laughs> eminent Canadian. Who is driving the bus, Margaret, is really the question. Margaret McQuaig Johnston with a senior fellow, Institute for Science, Society, and Policy, senior fellow, Graduate School of Public and International Affairs, University of Ottawa. Margaret, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too, Scott. 900 CHML. It's Hamilton Today. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, uh, talking about a digital loony and, of course, the latest political uh, occurrences of the day. Uh, Dr. Ian Lee with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Doing very well. Thanks, Scott. Before we get to the digital loony, just want to ask you your thoughts on the latest headlines. Obviously, yesterday, uh, Canada uh, expelling that uh, Chinese diplomat allegedly for interfering in, in targeting the family of MP Chong. Uh, today, uh, China reciprocates with uh, ex- expelling one of our uh, ambassadors there. Uh, many are asking why the prime minister is not being more transparent with this. It seems to cross all party lines that this is this sort of activity is is just not you, you can't tolerate it. Um, and yet he seems to be really slow on everything. Could it be that more transparency, more investigation actually makes the prime minister look bad as opposed to China? Why do you think he's dragging his feet here when it seems most people agree that this has got to stop? Well, I do agree with you that uh, there is uh, an increasing, uh, I think, consensus across party lines and certainly by the public opinion polls and the general public that it is not acceptable. Uh, It certainly violates all the norms and rules of the United Nations respecting the sovereignty of each nation. Um, So, but to your question, um, I mean, I think I always look at when something's happening and and you know I'm talking about government decisions or or of leaders and so forth and and ask okay what's the logic here what's what's going on here, and and I think in this instance there's one of two possibilities it seems to me two logical possibilities one is that um, and it's the more I guess uh, charitable um, uh, uh, interpretation is that he feels more uh, sympathetic or simpatico with. Uh, China than maybe many other Canadians do because of the family history. You know, his father was the first uh, leader of a Western country to recognize the People's Republic of China. Uh, many people think it was the Americans and a Richard Nixon, but we actually uh, recognized them before, slight a few months before uh, the U.S. did. So it could be that's one possibility is that he's not really uh, deeply wedded to the idea of, quote, going after China. Um uh, regardless of, of what they did. The second possibility, it's a darker possibility, is, is that uh, he's trying to contain it, uh, the crisis, the, 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 what's, going, what's being exposed. He's trying to prevent uh, an inquiry because there's more stuff that would come out that will be harmful or embarrassing uh, to, his, to him and his administration. So I think it's one of the two possibilities. One is he's genuinely, you know, he doesn't have the antipathy towards the Chinese government that many others do. Or alternatively, it's because he knows there's more scandals that have not yet 
uh, being seen the light of day. I think it's one of those two possibilities. Wow, either one isn't uh, a very good option there. All right, let's move on to uh, digital loonies, uh, cryptocurrencies, and such. A matter of time. What are your thoughts on a digital loonie? What is this? You know, I've been reading about it a lot for the last because it comes up in my courses, and I'm a former banker, and uh, you know, a long time ago, but still, you know. I was nine years in banking and it didn't leave my head just because I became a professor. And I'm, I'm fascinated because about it because I wrote a paper uh, for the McDonald Laurie Institute, not on digital um, a currency, but on the uh, profound transformation in the payments uh, world in Canada. If you look, there's an organization uh, called Payments Canada and it runs the clearing system. It was established actually when I was in the bank. In 1981, um, the bank clearing system, meaning checks, physical checks, used to be run and controlled by the banks. And then um, the Trudeau government uh, decided, after it was reelected in 1980-81, to introduce a bill to create this nonprofit corporation that would run the clearing system. And they publish annual statistics. And that's the beauty of That's where I'm going here very quickly. Uh, if you look at the latest, the last five or 10 years, Cash has been declining precipitously. Uh, I've got the 2021 uh, from their annual statistical report on payments in Canada. Listen to this. I'm not going to bore you with 20 or 30 numbers. Just two or three. This is year over year uh, payment transaction volumes. Uh, usage of ABM has declined 31%. Physical paper hmm. checks have declined 49%. Cash use of cash has declined. 62%. So, well, wait a minute. What's going on? What's going up if all that's going down? Online transfers, 469% increase. Um, credit card increase, 33%. Debit card, 10%. Now, people may think of their credit card and debit card as physical, but it isn't. It's just a card that sends a, an electronic digital signal to the bank or to your account. So I consider credit cards and debit cards to be digital payments because yeah. that's what they are. Online transfers are digital. You're not mm -hmm. carrying a bag of cash to the merchant when you use a debit card or a credit card. And so where I'm going with this is we're in the middle of this transformation. You and I have talked about it in many different dimensions of our economy. You know, journalism is in the middle of digital transformation. So is music and streaming and movies and so is banking and so forth. We are already mostly digital. Our banking system is almost completely digital. Can anybody remember the last time somebody showed up on Friday afternoon, as happened back in the 70s and 60s, yeah. with a truck with bags of cash to pay the workers in cash? Then yeah. we switched to paper checks. Has anybody listening can tell me that they get their regular paycheck every two weeks on a piece of paper that they have to then carry to the bank? Of course not. Credit your 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 payment your salaries are credited electronically your mortgage your rent payment is debited electronically you pay your credit but your your utility bills electronically okay so where I'm going with this is the society and the banks and us and merchants and so forth we are overwhelmingly digital already now the Bank of Canada said if we pass a tipping point they're thinking of seriously bringing in a digital currency. First off, I think we've already passed the tipping point. So the is the tipping, does that mean we go from paper all to online, paper gone? Well, let me put it to you this way. I'll give you a very personal example. Me. Starting about, it would be at least 10 years ago, I stopped withdrawing cash, period. Totally. Totally. When I go to the States, I do not take cash. I take my credit card and my debit card. Actually, I take two credit cards in case I lose one. When I go to Europe, when I went to China, I've been teaching, as you know, in China for since 1997, I stopped taking and buying uh, uh, RMB. That's the Chinese RMB currency. I stopped buying it. I just don't. I put, because everybody takes credit card. I go to Europe. Everybody takes credit card. Everybody in the States, everybody in Canada. I literally put my parking meters for $2 on my credit card. I carry zero cash. And when you look at the percentage of the transactions, it's collapsing like a stone. And so we are already mostly digital payments. So Scott, let me quickly, before I run out of time, turn to the idea of a digital currency. I, I'm skeptical, not because, I'm skeptical because of the unintended consequences. I'm not skeptical that the Bank of Canada can do it. Of course they can do it. If parliament agrees and parliament mandates them, they can do it. 
but it's going to have some curious unintended consequences. One is you have to store the digital cash on something called a little piece of plastic, almost like a Home Depot gift card or a Canadian Tire gift card, or you store it on your cell phone or on your laptop because it's digital. Well, that means you can be traced and tracked. I have no problem with that because I don't do anything naughty or bad. But for people who say, wait a minute, I don't want the government to know what I'm doing mm. with my cash. Mm. Well, you're going to have real problems with a digital currency issued by the Bank of Canada because they will know every last transaction that you mm. will undertake. Okay, wow. the it, it problem, eliminates the black it eliminates the black market. It but it certainly will. It certainly will. And the second problem is it's going to create, it's going to blow, and I say blow up, I don't want to be too melodramatic. It's going to cause great problems for banks because banks take money on deposit. That's what they do. That's their core business. And what do they do? They take your salary and my salary and everybody else's salary and the spare cash to the people who want to buy a mortgage. So what Ian, happens I if you have a choice between putting your money on deposit at the bank or you getting digital currency from the Bank of Canada, which is completely... Uh, cannot fail, cannot go bankrupt. It's back. It's, it's it's part of the economy of Canada. Well, it's going to suck deposits out of the banking system. And mm. yet the banking system is needed to lend all those billions and billions and billions of dollars for car loans and bank loans and consolidation loans and business loans and mortgage loans. So it's going to cause enormous disruption to banking. And is mm. the government, the Bank of Canada, going to start lending mortgage money to everybody because now it's got all the, the deposits or much of the deposits in the country's economy? Are they going to st start lending mortgage money and car I got to stop so you forth. there, Ian. Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor with the Sprott School of Business, Carleton University on the Digital Looney, or is it already here? Obviously, last week, the passing of Gordon Lightfoot, uh, many Canadians taking a step back to uh, remember. We were calling Aurelia, talking to a counselor up there uh, a couple of times, uh, especially over this past weekend when they had a large memorial going on and such. Uh, obviously, Aurelia, the town where uh, Gordon Lightfoot uh, grew up and such, but the love is right the way across the country. And a Toronto restaurateur has pro uh, proposed to rename Young Dundas Square in Toronto in honor of Gordon Lightfoot. And the idea seems to be picking up steam. Let's bring in Aaron Barbarian, restaurateur, owner of Barbarian Steakhouse at Sub uh, 7 Elm Street in Toronto, and is with us now. Aaron, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, I am. How did this all come about, Aaron? Well, it was about 30 years ago that we, uh, in the neighborhood, and I kind of came up with this idea for Young Dundas Square, and, and we in the neighborhood knew we needed a space to kind of have music and, and entertainment and the like, and, and we had this placeholder name, Young Dundas Square, YD Square, and just sat there and sat there and sat there. And with the passing of, of the great Canadian Gordon Lightfoot, a man who played um, hundreds and hundreds of concerts in the neighborhood, more than 170 times at Massey Hall, uh, that moment, that light bulb moment to uh, rename the square came to me uh, uh, on Friday morning. And I wrote a letter to the mayor and, and the mayor's office, excuse me, as we don't have a mayor right now but, right. Uh, here in Toronto. But uh, yeah, and it's, it's gaining steam. It's, it's a, pretty, a pretty amazing thing that everybody understands his importance to our neighborhood. So have you heard back from the city on this, Aaron? Uh, many of the counselors have, have, have expressed uh, great interest in the idea. They like it. They like it a lot. Um, uh, we, are, we have two motions going to City Hall tomorrow uh, uh, to um, honor uh, uh, Gordon Lightfoot's memory. There's, there's, there's smaller to Gordon Lightfoot Day on the anniversary of his, uh, his birth and, uh, and maybe a statue somewhere. But um, the, the, it's going to take more than just uh, a week after Gordon's passing. It's going to mm -hmm. take a new mayor and a, and a bigger, a bigger um, process to make this happen. That was my next question, Aaron. What is the process? But with the mayoral election the way or where it is right now, do you think that will kind of delay this in any way? Um, it probably will, but, but it's, I don't think it's only going to strengthen it, uh, as mm. we hear about memorial concerts and events around, uh, around the life of, of, of Gordon Lightfoot. Uh, but Toronto has made a decision. They're taking the name Dundas off of everything here. And I know it's, uh, um, controversial in the Hamilton area because we've got a, a whole, uh, town named after yeah. uh, Lord Dundas. Uh, but, but the name has to change. And if it has to change, uh, we can't think of a better person, a uh, better Canadian, 
then uh, Gordon Light put the name this way. So wait a sec, Aaron. Are you proposing not only uh, renaming uh, uh, Young Dundas Square uh, after Gordon Lightfoot, but like the town of Dundas? It, it now is Lightfoot. <laughs> Should we move with that, Aaron? <laughs> I love you guys. Dundas love you, is Aaron. now Lightfoot. Uh, he's a, he was a great Canadian, and uh, yeah. I don't think he would ever have asked for any sort of honors. Uh, yeah. His style, I've met him many times. Um, uh, I but I do think it is the time to honor uh, this man who loved the, basically the, uh, he wrote a song called um, on young street. He yeah. loved this neighborhood. Um, and it's time for this neighborhood to honor him. Now, do you think that it would require like a redesign of the square in any way? You talked about a statue of sort. Uh, what about that? Well, I, I was involved in picking the design of the square, which I was pretty excited. It was supposed to be a quiet space amongst all the, 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 the excitement, the, the, the signage and everything, the retail environment. Um, I think it could be done relatively inexpensively, but, um, and, you know, with some signage and, and the like. It, but um, I, I, I would like to see other things happen in the square after it gets named. I'd like to see some music festivals, uh, something to honor uh, young mm-hmm. writers who write songs about what it means to be a Canadian, um, maybe some bursaries or things like that. But I do think that um, it can be done it should be done, and it probably will be done. Website to find out more about this, Aaron? I haven't done that yet. It, it, I want this to grow organically. I planted the right. seed. Um, I'm hearing from I'm hearing from some pretty famous uh, musicians and and from politicians hmm. and others. Um, I just want everybody who lives in the Toronto area to write a letter to your councillor or the mayor's office and say, "Hey, look, that's not a bad idea. Uh, this man uh, deserves." deserves every, uh, this honor. Young Dundas Square, renamed in honor of Gordon Lightfoot. Why not? Aaron Barbarian with us, restaurateur, owner of Barbarian Steakhouse at 7 Elm Street in Toronto. Aaron, thanks for the time. Good luck. A pleasure. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, uh, just in the last few days, uh, Victory Day was celebrated. It's a holiday, uh, a, a, a dedicated day to uh, Russia and such, and, and they celebrate their military, uh, but much a scaled-down version this year. And a statement coming out of Putin uh, basically saying uh, the West is waging a real war on Russia. Uh, which is kind of an odd time to be saying all of this. Let's bring in Dr. Jack Cunningham, Ph.D. Program Coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College and Monk School, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Jack, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, Scott. Hope you're well, too. Uh, thank you so much, Jack. You know, we seem to hover on the words that uh, certain leaders say and such. Um, is there much significance to the West is waging a war against Russia, a real war against Russia? What does this say? I think this is a case of Putin doubling down on his theme that, uh, that the West is uh, is attacking Russia. He's attempting to appeal to uh, sentiments of solidarity among uh, among his public. And I don't think it's a coincidence. That, uh, that, uh, that this is Victory Day when, uh, you know, the Russians celebrate their victory over, uh, over Hitler in World War II. And that reflects, uh, obviously, memories of that reflect badly on uh, Putin's inability to defeat uh, Vladimir Zelensky and, uh, and Ukraine. There's also, as part of the context, the fact that uh, three days ago, Andrei Kovalev, head of the Moscow Council of Entrepreneurs, made a TV broadcast in which he painted a very grim portrait of the uh, the way the war is going. And uh, Putin has to be concerned about the extent to which he may be losing support among the oligarchs who uh, who are crucial to his, uh, his position and his popularity. Uh, it, it seems that um, we remember way back when, uh, because many thought this would, well, he thought it was certainly going to be over in a matter of days or weeks, mm-hmm. and, and then it dragged on, and, and more uh, support from allies and such, and then it was a winter offensive, then it was a spring offensive. What's next? Where does this go? We thought these situations would sort of be the peak or the end. It just seems to grind on. Well, it grinds on because uh, Putin can't uh, can't quite bring himself to give up, and uh, we have been a little dilatory 
in terms of uh, arming Ukraine with the weapons that uh, that Putin has deemed escalatory. We've we've done so in the end, but generally uh, generally rather late and rather little. So uh, that's that's part of the picture as well. What happened to China's peace plan? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> China, I think, is playing uh, playing a rather cagey game. Of Mr. Xi is trying to uh, play both sides against the middle. He doesn't want Beijing to be quite the international pariah that uh, that Moscow has become, that Putin has become. And while he's uh, while he's given uh, Putin some rhetorical support, his uh, his peace plan really doesn't amount to much. I think it's more a case of uh, posturing and positioning than of actually. Uh, coming up with a serious proposal for de-escalating the conflict. Is there something of significance coming, Jack? Like, again, I was making reference to the winter offensive or a spring offensive. What's the next thing? What's the next shoe to drop here? Well, the next uh, the next shoe is probably going to be uh, Putin doubling down on uh, on mobilization of conscripts and on uh, on the on on the uh, the firing of missiles. At Ukrainian cities, which has escalated considerably in recent uh, in recent days, uh, it is hard to see an end game for this. Short of his uh, his uh, his being defeated, and he's reluctant to acknowledge the the extent to which uh, this has not gone according to plan. Any comments, Jack, on the expulsion of diplomats we're seeing right now happening between Canada and China? Obviously, issues around uh, MP Chong and his family being harassed and such. Uh, and a week later, or some saying two years later, um, now something is being done. And the next day, boom, Canadian diplomat ousted from uh, China. Any thought on this? Well, first of all, I think the fact that the government dithered so long before expelling the Chinese diplomat conveyed weakness, regardless of what the intent was, it conveyed weakness to Beijing. And it's far from clear to me that uh, Beijing's retaliation will stop with uh, the expulsion of the uh, the Canadian diplomat from uh, from uh, from China. Uh, I, the uh, the regime in Beijing is pretty bloody minded, and they may well retaliate in in other ways. We may see economic measures. We may see uh, conceivably, even a, a return to uh, the uh, the uh, the arbitrary detention of Canadian nationals in China. Nothing, uh, nothing would surprise me coming out of the Beijing regime. It seemed the government was worried about retaliation. Does that not just show weakness? I mean, does that mean we've given up? Um, you know, if if we don't do something, this just keeps increasing. Can we not get ahead of this? Uh, fundamentally, it does show weakness, and I think we should have been uh, much stronger in uh, in the beginning when this issue first came to light. Uh, there's also the fundamental question of exactly uh, who knew what regarding the threats against uh, against Mr. Chung, and we've yet to get uh, a persuasive answers to that question. But uh, dither- dithering and hesitation and uh, and hand wringing over the possibility of retaliation does convey weakness. And that's how it's going to be read in Beijing. And when are we? When are they not retaliating? When are we not being held hostage or threatened in some way? There's always somebody detained somewhere in all of this. When does it not happen? It uh, it only happens when we uh, refuse to be cowed by it. When we refuse to go along. Hmm. When Dr. we Jack- do what we think is uh, is, uh, is is dictated by the circumstances, regardless of uh, the possibility of retaliation. Dr. Jack Cunningham with us, Ph.D. Program Coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College and the Mike uh, Monk School, University of Toronto. Jack, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am doing well. How about you? You know, I was just saying on the air, uh, we were waiting for Nick Nanos. Nick Nanos from Nanos Research. New poll out from him. Uh, despite what the Prime Minister says, 64% of Canadians think we should be hitting the 2% target of NATO. I think the whole 2% is just a red herring because people will break down the GDP and whether it's too much, too little. The 
end of the day, the whole point is we need to put some money into the Canadian military and get it back up to where it needs to be. Uh, that being said, it certainly feels like the tide is changing. However, as I mentioned in my last break, I kind of feel like I'm a kid on a school bus and the prime minister's driving and he's got his hands off the wheel and his eyes closed and he's just going, wee as the bus, you know, hits the guardrail and sparks are flying. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Uh, are, are people, is this sinking in with people? I mean, there's just so many, uh, that have said that the prime minister is dragging his feet on the Chinese interference issue. And the only reason one can think that you are dragging your feet is that you've got a soft spot for them. Uh, you're incompetent or, uh, you're hoping that something isn't revealed about yourself. Uh, what do you think the reason for the lack of transparency in all of this? Because it seems across all three political stripes, everybody's saying what happened to, to, to the MP is, is just, it can't happen. Something needs to be done. And yet the prime minister is, is dragging his feet. Everybody's saying this week, this should have been done with the expulsion of, of the, uh, diplomat long ago. Um, is he hiding something? Do you think he's hiding something? Does, the more we find out, the more he looks back. All I remember is that, um, once upon a time, if my memory serves, this prime minister promised the most transparent government ever. I, 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 I remember and the that. last elect and the last election to be won at the first past the post system, but that was two elections ago well, where he lost the popular vote and he would have lost the election. But you know what? If you're going to argue for true, this is the, this is the problem with power. Let's be honest. This is the problem with power is that. You come up with great ideas of what you're going to do when you take charge. And then as soon as you take charge, you, you realize, Hmm, maybe there was a reason the other folks did what they were doing that we were harping on them. Now I'm not saying all the things that every government does is right, but it seems that every government that takes over does the exact thing that they were screaming at the one before them that they defeated for being wrong. Go, go back and find me the government that hasn't done this that hasn't taken over and then decided all those things that we said they were doing wrong, they end up doing. I don't know. I think this, and, and, you know, many people will go back to this, you know, you're either on the left or you're right. We've talked about this before. Uh, it's the policy. You just don't like the policy. You know, this to me has nothing to do with any of that. This is a personal situation where it appears the prime minister does not have his hands on the wheel. And this is not the first example. There are many, many, many of them. So for me, it's it over and above because I voted for all of them over and above the policy. I don't give a rat's ass anymore. I really don't. I just want to see some sort of competence, some sort of sign that this guy actually has a clue as to what he's doing, as opposed to the people in the back room who are actually running the show. Well, so, uh, you know, other point, Katie Telfer, when she was speaking, I think you referred to this in the last segment, but when she was speaking weeks ago, he gets ago, everything. Everything goes to him. Yep. So you cannot have it both ways. Either he has received all the briefings and chose not to do anything, which people can then make their decisions on what they think of that decision, or he doesn't get everything in which case, why doesn't he get everything and what does he get? And to your next point or to the point you just said of who is running things. So he's either in charge and fully in control and ultimately needs to be responsible for what's been going on the last few weeks, or he isn't really in charge. He's a figurehead who travels around and shakes hands and rolls up his sleeves and smiles and gives overly dramatic speeches at liberal conventions. And there are other people who are in the background running it, but then we need to know that to know that, okay, it's really not Trudeau that's to blame for this. It's the liberal or the government apparatus. You can't, it cannot be both things at once. It cannot be that he gets everything or he doesn't get everything. Uh, and to me, the lack of transparency and the, because it seems all Canadians are on the same page here, certainly two thirds of them. Uh, and I would venture even more than that are on the same page. I'm believing the lack of transparency is because this benefits him, it benefits his party, and anything that we do to expose China will not embarrass China, it will embarrass the Prime Minister. I'm coming right out and saying that, because what other explanation can there be other than he's totally incompetent? 
it's it's a difficult uh, the the China thing is a difficult one because had they taken a position right off the start, right at the beginning of their term, to take a firm hand with China, this wouldn't probably be the problem today. But now, if you don't, you've had the two Michaels, you've had all these other things. Now we don't know what China might do or how they might react or what they might know. <laughs> if but you know what, this is why we use this example. If you're a parent. You have to be firm and discipline your child. You don't let them get away with everything because then they believe they can get away with everything. And then it becomes very difficult to discipline them later because they've learned you're not going to do anything. If you had come in from the beginning and been firm on these foreign policy issues and been consistent, I'm very sure we would not be facing the kind of things we are right now. Because we would have said, yes, you're way bigger than us. Yes, you're way more powerful than us. Doesn't matter. There are other countries, Australia, New Zealand, there are other countries that have taken a far more firm hand and we're not hearing about these things happening there. Good point. All right, Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great show. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Jim emails, well said, Scott. We desperately need a new prime minister. Sign Jim. <laughs>